our clitoris awareness is dismal. It's really, really bad. And that's not just patients. Actually, when it comes to OBGYNs examining the clitoris and evaluating the clitoris, that actually has a lot to be desired as well. Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Jill Kraft. She is a board-certified OBGYN specializing in female sexual pain disorders. She's also associate director for the Center of Vulvo-Vaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C., and clinical associate professor at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Services. She is a North American Menopause Society certified menopause practitioner very active in research and she's published various chapters and articles on vulvodynia and vulva lichen cirrhosis. Yes, today's episode is all about the vulva and vulvas need love too. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jill Kraft. Dr. Jill Kraft, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I am thrilled to have you. And I, I just, first of all, if nobody can see this beautiful woman, I just told her that she looks 22. But actually, she has three kids and it's not 22, but she is just looks like a, a shining star. So we love having you here, especially because of who you are and what you do for vagina owners. So thank you for that. Yes. Jill, let's start with just learning a little bit about you. I am very interested in what took you down this journey of being a vulva specialist. So tell us exactly what you do and how you do it. So I'm a board certified OBGYN, which means that I went to medical school. I did a four-year residency in obstetrics and gynecology learning how to deliver babies and do hysterectomies and all of that good stuff. And then during my final year of training, I was assigned to a surgery. And this was a surgery for something called vulvodynia, which we only do surgery for a small amount of this type of diagnosis, but it's something I had never seen before. And I started learning about these pain conditions and I was absolutely shocked that I was about to graduate my residency, go out into the world, practicing independently, and I had absolutely no idea about vulvovaginal conditions as an obstetrician gynecologist. And so I spent the next year shadowing one of the main clinicians and researchers in this field. Um, his name is Dr. Andrew Goldstein. He has a center for vulvovaginal disorders in Washington, D.C. Go, yes. Andrew. <laughs> we love him uh, in Washington, D.C., as well as New York. So I spent a year with him. I learned everything I possibly could. I read all of the research I could get my hands on. And then I started the Center for Sexual Health at the institution where I was practicing. And mm -hmm. as a junior faculty member, I was just trying to learn the ropes. I was seeing all the females with sexual dysfunction. And there was an older gentleman, a urologist, who was in private practice for about 30 years, decided he was not ready to retire. So he had joined the academic institution and he was treating all the men with erectile dysfunction. 
But the problem was that these men were able to be functional again, and the women in their lives were saying, no, there's pain. This I don't want this. This hurts. And so there was really a role for, for treating women, especially women with vulvar pain conditions and libido issues. And mm. so I started to see all the women that were coming with the men. And I mm -hmm. ran that clinic. It grew and grew. The demand was very high. I trained two nurse practitioners because I could not even keep up with the volume my, myself. And then over the years, I moved to a different institution um, due to family reasons. I start. I was starting a center for sexual health there. And then I had the opportunity to go back to Washington, D.C., which is where I am now, working with my mentor, Dr. Andrew Goldstein. I decided to give up obstetrics, not delivering babies anymore, and really dedicate my practice full time to my patients who have vulvovaginal conditions. And I've mm. never looked back. It's been so rewarding. Wow. Well, you are so needed. I can only guess that probably one in two women suffer with issues with their vulvas over their lifetime. And it's just not discussed. So oh, this is going to be a good show. First question. We're going to start with the basics. Obviously, I know the answer to this, but so many people do not, both men and women. What is the difference between a vulva and a vagina? I get this all the time. And, you know, it's it, it seems basic, but it's really not because we tend to call everything a vagina. And unfortunately, most of the things that I care about and what my patients care about are actually related to the vulva. So the vagina is the internal part. It's the part that we can't see with our eyes. It's a expandable tube, essentially, that connects the outside of the body with the cervix, which is the bottom part of the uterus. And it's essentially something that expands to 10 plus centimeters to Ooh. let a baby pass through. Um, there's not many nerve endings in the vagina. There are pelvic floor muscles that surround the vagina, but it's not where the action is. Mm. The action is actually the vulva. The vulva is... 99% of where pleasure is derived, it's 99% of where pain is located when we're talking about sexual pain. And that's because the vulva contains some really, really important structures. Mm -hmm. It has the clitoris, which we Yay. all should know about, and we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up, I'm sure. Uh -huh. It also contains, so going from outside to inside, we have our labia majora, which are our larger hair-bearing lips. We mm -hmm. have our labia minora, which are internal to that, and they come in all different shapes and sizes, mm -hmm. and they are often not the same from one side to the other. People should definitely know that. Mm -hmm. And then internal to the labia minora is a very, very important area that almost no one knows about. This mm -hmm. is called the vestibule, the vulvar vestibule. And this is the vaginal opening, essentially. It's the area where the urethra is located, which is the little tube that allows us to drain our urine. It's also where the gland openings are that produce natural lubrication that allows that skin to stay healthy and supple. And it mm -hmm. also prevents pain and friction with anything inserted inside the vagina. And oftentimes when people have pain in this area, 
it is localized to that ring-shaped area called the vestibule, which is about the size of a postage stamp. Ooh, vestibule. Okay. I have learned something new. I didn't know I had a vestibule. Vestibule? (laughs) Okay. Fantastic. All right. So I want to go through what are all the different vulva conditions that can happen to us. And I'm sure I've had most of them. And it's not really something you sit around the kitchen table going, what's your vulva issue today? But I'm sure we've all had most of them. So I do know about vaginismus, which is the vagina not being able to accept a penis during intercourse. We are going to get into that. But what are the most common issues that we have with our vulvas? Absolutely. So when we look at vulvar pain, there's the common well-researched causes of vulvar pain. These are conditions that we know about and we have some literature on, we may even have guidelines on. And then there's this black box of vulvar pain that we call vulvodynia. And that is what I specialize in. Now, with things that we commonly know about, these would be things like something called genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM, which is the new term for vulvovaginal atrophy. After a while, we felt that atrophy sounded a little harsh, right? It sounds like something's dying down there. And so we renamed it genitourinary syndrome of menopause for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, to really tie in that menopausal aspect, yeah, but also yeah. to really tie in the fact that our urinary health is really tied to hormones as well in menopause. So it's not just about vaginal dryness or pain Mm. with intercourse. It's really about recurrent urinary tract infections as well. And so GSM, or that menopausal atrophic condition, is no longer considered vulvodynia because we now know much more about how it's caused. Mm. Other conditions that used to be maybe in the vulvodynia family but no longer are, are skin conditions of the vulva. These Mm -hmm. are things like uh, lichen sclerosis and lichen planus, which are autoimmune conditions. And most people have never heard of these unless they have a family member or themselves have been affected. But if you do happen to be touched by these, you probably know quite a bit about it. These are conditions that cause itch, chronic itch. They can also cause scarring of the vulva, leading to tearing with intercourse and pain with intercourse. So they're very disruptive conditions, but they all have treatments and management strategies attached to them. So quick clarification question. How do you get those? Yes. Are they sexually transmitted or? No, they're not sexually transmitted. They're believed to be autoimmune in nature. So we are still trying to figure that out. A lot of my research actually centers around this. Um, We think Mm -hmm. that there is an autoimmune component. So there's a protein in the bottom layer of that skin of the vulva that the body Mm -hmm. identifies as not self for whatever reason. And then it mounts a local immune response, which leads to thickening of the skin. And that leads to the changes um, that cause itching and scarring in that area. And we also believe there's a genetic component. So there's about a 16% chance if you have lichen sclerosis that you also have either a mother, sister, or daughter with the same condition. So right now we're doing research to try to figure out which genes are involved in these conditions so we can hopefully figure out a blood test to diagnose it because right now we can only diagnose by 
clinically and by biopsy, mm -hmm. and also to figure out some good treatment options for these conditions. Amazing. Okay. So when you have a new partner and you're off in your honeymoon phase and you're having loads of sex and, you know, it can get painful, right? Because you just basically, I mean, I don't know if there's too much sex. There's got to be too much sex at some point. And then, of course, you get the inevitable UTI or thrush or yeast infection. So you get the yeast infection, then you get the UTI, and then you take antibiotics and you get another yeast infection. So why is that? And what can we do to prevent it? Yes. So this is a cycle that I see in so many of my patients. The story is eerily similar every single time. And what we're realizing is, yes, there are some people that are prone to yeast. And we do think there's a genetic component to being sensitive to yeast because yeast is not one of those things that we can eradicate. It's Yeast lives in and among us, in every one of us. But mm -hmm. in some people, they're just more sensitive to the levels or in some people, they have higher levels that become symptomatic. So recurrent yeast and being prone to yeast is a thing. But mm -hmm. I have to say that most people that feel like they have a yeast infection actually do not have a yeast infection. And they, in fact, don't really have an infection at all. The issue is that the nerve endings of the vestibule, again, which is that vaginal opening area where we feel that tingly kind of yeast infection feeling, there's only one type of nerve ending, one type of nerve receptor there. It's called a mm. C afferent nociceptor. So any input to that nerve receptor is going to feel similar. It's going to feel mm. like what we attribute to in our head, which is thrush or a yeast infection. Mm -hmm. And so there can be many different causes of discomfort and pain in that area, especially when someone doesn't have the discharge and the other symptoms associated with it. And mm -hmm. so other things that can cause discomfort in that area that can feel like a yeast infection are hormonal reasons. Mm -hmm. And we can see that in all age groups. Um, mm -hmm. Before I talked about GSM, which we know happens in menopause, but we can see that in perimenopause. And we know that perimenopause mm -hmm. can start in our early 40s, 10 years mm -hmm. before the average age of menopause. And we also see very similar effects in younger women in their 20s and 30s and 40s who are on certain types of medication or who may have low hormones due to other reasons, such as mm -hmm. breastfeeding or in the postpartum time period. So mm -hmm. the underlying reason for all of this is very similar, but the causes are different depending on what's going on in the body. Right. It is really all about hormones, isn't it? <laughs> As I get more knowledgeable about this stuff, you know, and most people don't understand that. And, and also how our gut and our bladder are also so interlinked. So, you know, gut health, bladder health, hormone health are just all so important for our sexual well-being. Yes, and stress. People do mm, not yeah. understand how much stress affects all of these different systems, including our gut and our vagina. Stress affects our vagina and yeah. our vulva as well. Yeah. My vagina has definitely been stressed out. It definitely had a stressed out vagina. 
Okay, so many questions. Now, tell us again what GSM stands for. Yes. So GSM is that new term for atrophy. It stands for genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So it's talking about vaginal dryness, discomfort, pain with sex that occurs when the estrogen levels drop, such as in menopause. Now, what I want to talk about, thank you for clarifying that. What I want to talk about, which I think is the number one thing that we hear at the body agency is when women start to go through perimenopause and menopause, their libido completely drops off. You know, perhaps they're taking estrogen or, you know, their OBGYN has thrown them some pills, but it's so inadequate and it's so frustrating because most of our medical providers don't get into the whole thing, right? They're just like, okay, well, the bog standard here is we're going to give you estrogen, take these. You can either take them orally or you can put them through your skin or you can have them inserted. So there's all these different products now that are coming out into the market to really help with this vaginismus, as in painful sex. Often the penis just can't go in, right? It's it's that painful. So what's your take on products versus treating the symptoms versus prevention of the issue? And talk to us about that. Yes. So you bring up so many good points here. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, I'm a big proponent of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I believe everything has a cause, and usually with pain with intercourse, there are multiple contributing factors. There's multiple causes at play. You mentioned vaginismus, which is really interesting because when we talk about vaginismus in layman's terms, we're usually talking about pain with sex as kind of like an all-comer, like we just use it as a term for pain with sex. But in the research, vaginismus means something completely different. Um, It refers to tightening of the muscles, but it's more of a fear-based response. So vaginismus in the purest sense is when someone has a phobia or a fear-based response of penetration that leads to involuntary tightening of the muscles surrounding the vaginal opening. And so it feels like whatever is being inserted is hitting a wall and cannot enter. Mm. And this differs from something else that is very important, and that's called overactive or hypertonic pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. And I know that was a mouthful, but I'm going to break it down. So when we're talking about overactive pelvic floor muscles, we're talking about the muscles of the pelvic floor being responsively tight or in spasm. And in almost all vulvar pain conditions, whether they're due to a skin condition or hormones or a nerve-related condition, there's almost always a responsive muscle part of that because that's just how our body works. If I were to have you touch a hot stove and you knew it was hot and then I tried to force your hand and have you touch it again, what are you going to do? You're going to resist me and tense your arm so you don't touch that hot surface, right? And so that's essentially how our muscles get trained when there's discomfort or pain at the vaginal opening on the vulva or in the vagina. And so that's a little bit different than vaginismus, which is more of a fear-based 
tightening of the muscle as Mm -hmm. opposed to the muscles being tight day in, day out as Mm -hmm. you walk around and um, Mm -hmm. in response to a painful stimuli, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I first heard the word vaginismus actually because of that Netflix show about the Orthodox Jewish young lady. I think the show is called Unorthodox, where she physically couldn't have intercourse with her new arranged marriage husband. And her mother-in-law turns up with a big old vibrator and told her to use that. I mean, is that a solution? Should we be out there buying vibrators to help with this issue? So what was depicted on that show was true vaginismus, that fear-based response. So these are patients who have never been able to insert a tampon as a teenager, who have never tolerated any sort of insertion, even insertion of their own finger. And that really clues us into more of a vaginismus response. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that someone with vaginismus they are likely not walking around with tight pelvic floor muscles, right? It's only when they think about insertion or are in the gynecologist's office for a pelvic exam or in a sexual situation where something's maybe inserted, that's when the muscles tighten. And so that was a really good depiction of true vaginismus. And the treatment for that is a combination of psychotherapy, so sex therapy, cognitive Mm -hmm. behavioral therapy, and what we call desensitization, which may involve vaginal trainers. So Mm. the idea here is to basically introduce something very small and narrow, and it starts actually outside of the vagina. So the first step is you would take something like a dilator or even a finger, or it could be anything, and you would just touch the vulva on the outside, the skin on the outside. And someone would have that fear response. And then they would basically hold that object there until that fear response subsides, maybe do some deep breathing or visualization. And then you would progress a little further and a little further so you can desensitize the area. It's not dissimilar from if you had a phobia of spiders, right? Mm, What would mm. you do? You would first, you know, look at maybe a picture of a spider and -hmm. then you would progress to maybe a spider that was not alive, that was in a glass box. Mm -hmm. And you would, you would go further and further until you desensitize. So the treatment for vaginismus is very similar. And this, this is very different than the treatment for other muscle related and nerve related conditions. So for example, overactive pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, which is the tightness of the muscles where people walk around with their muscles tight all the time. And that has bladder effects and bowel effects and pain with sex effects and back pain effects. Mm -hmm. That is treated in a very different way. That incorporates pelvic floor physical therapy to downregulate the nervous system, to decrease the tension in the muscles through relaxation and through release of those muscles. Mm. And then that can incorporate some dilator therapy through biofeedback, where you insert a dilator, you feel your muscles tense around it, and then you learn how to control those muscles and where those muscles are. So Mm. these are subtle differences in treatment, but that's why it's so essential that someone who specialized in this actually gives someone a real diagnosis. Because if you tried to treat someone with vaginismus with pelvic floor physical therapy, dilator therapy, in the same way that you would treat someone with overactive pelvic floor, it actually might be detrimental. Mm. um, Or it could be not the optimal treatment if you don't have that 
fear response psychological component added in there. Yeah. I had read a statistic that 25 million vagina owners in America suffer from vaginismus. I mean, that's a shocking, shocking statistic. Yes. And that's pretty high. I would say that would probably include that overactive muscle group as Mm -hmm. well, um, because people tend to lump all all of them together. I think the true incidence of vaginismus is probably much lower. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, you know, that's the problem. We we tend to lump these conditions all together. And Mm -hmm. then unfortunately, what happens is that the treatment options for them are not great. Like, for example, with vulvodynia, we lump that together and we give a diagnosis of vulvodynia, but vulvodynia is defined as vulvar pain without an identifiable cause. So Mm. how do you treat something if you don't know what causes it? And then that leads to the main treatment of choice being antidepressants for vulvodynia. I don't know if you saw that Sex in the City episode a while ago, um, but it it was, uh, is my vagina depressed? Uh, Charlotte had vulvodynia and she was prescribed an antidepressant. Um, And we now know that antidepressants are not the treatment um, for most vulvar pain conditions. They do have a role in some nerve-related conditions, such as pudendal neuralgia, but not in a lot of vulvar pain conditions that are related to muscle and hormone and so forth. Mm. Why do I wake up some days and my vulva just hurts? Like, it's just like an average day, you know, like, yeah, my is my vagina, is my vulva depressed? Well, why does it just ache some days? Just aches. Like, I haven't done anything out of the ordinary. It's just, I have an achy vulva. What's going on? So the descriptors that my patients use are so illuminating to determine what's going on. I love, I listen to my patients very closely because they tell me what is causing their pain. They tell me. And whenever I hear the word ache. It tells me muscle. It tells me Mm. muscle. And it tells me that the, so what I've learned is that many females, many vulva owners, vagina owners hold tension in their pelvic floor. And you know, you've heard of people that get tension headaches or neck pain or migraine headaches, right? Certain people will hold tension in their pelvic floor. And when you do that all day, every day, it means you're clenching. And Mm. I have had, I had one patient tell me, I diagnosed her with overactive pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. And I said, I want you for the next week to just pay attention to if you're clenching your butt. Okay. Just pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. And so she emailed me and she said, you know what? I clench all the time. It's not only when I'm at work. It's not only Mm -hmm. when I have a meeting that I'm nervous about. It's literally, she was reading to her four-year-old daughter, completely relaxed, bedtime story, everything was fine, no stress. And she checked in with her pelvic floor and she was clenching. Mm -hmm. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. And then people, my patients always ask me, okay, fine, I clench. You know, I'm a clencher. So how does that make my vagina or my vulva or that area achy, right? What's the connection there? How does that work? And so the idea here is that when we clench our muscles, when we tighten our muscles, all blood flow in our body, all muscles in our body have blood flow, blood vessels that go through the muscles and to the muscles to feed those muscles with blood. And blood has oxygen. 
oxygen is the fuel that we need to make those muscles work, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, if our muscles in the pelvic floor are always squeezing or in spasm, it's squeezing off that blood flow. And so there's less blood going to those muscles, but those mm -hmm. muscles still need to work because they're clenching and tensing all the time. So basically, the vulva aches because there's a limited amount of blood flow because of the squeezing of the muscles. And this mm -hmm. causes that aching, burning, discomfort. Remember, I was saying before, there's only one type of nerve fiber there. So we interpret everything as feeling like an infection because we are so familiar with yeast infections or thrush that we don't automatically think, oh, it feels like my pelvic floor muscles are a bit tight today. No one says that. Or no one says, oh, it feels like my greater vestibular glands need a little estrogen, right? <laughs> Everything just feels like a yeast infection. And then the problem is that when things feel like a yeast infection, because we don't know about these other causes, we go to the pharmacy and we pick up an over-the-counter medication mm -hmm. that that usually has some harmful irritants in the mm -hmm. base, and that causes the area to burn even more, which causes our muscles to react and spasm even more. And then that leads us to feel like we have to use the bathroom more often because it causes urinary symptoms as those mm -hmm. muscles are spasming around mm -hmm. the bladder. And then we think we have a urinary tract infection. So then we get antibiotics and then that messes up our gut and around and around we go. Oh my God, we are misdiagnosing our vulvas. That yes. is what is happening over and over again. We are misdiagnosing STDs. We are misdiagnosing pain. We need to take better care of our vulvas and have better vulva awareness. Now, on that note, I'm trying to think what we can do at the Body Agency to help this. And of course, we want to build the right content where people can really understand about all these different, you know, vulva issues. So we have all these kits. In fact, one of the kits that we're doing right now, what we're very proud of, and it will be promoted at the end of this podcast, is we're sending dignity kits out to the Ukraine, to the refugees. And they're full of the bare essentials that we need for our cleanliness and our hygiene and our safety. So based on that, if we at the Body Agency were to put together a a healthy vulva kit, what would you put in it? Like, do we need skincare for our vulva? I guess is a question. And if we did, what should we have in that kit? Go. Yes. So this is why it's so important to know the difference between the vagina and the vulva. So the vagina is a self-cleaning oven. We do not need to put anything inside the vagina, no douching, none of that. The vagina will take care of itself in most circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now, the vulva, on the other hand, is like the skin of our face. We have a full face routine to keep our skin plump and happy, especially when hormonal changes start to take effect. And so the vulva does need some care and some love. And so I'm a big advocate of using a vulvar moisturizer. Ooh. And most people will say, well, a vulvar moisturizer, what, what are you talking about? So after you get out of the shower, what do you do? You put moisturizer on your face, you put lotion on your body. Well, your, your vulva needs some extra care too. And you want to make sure that you're using really 
non-irritating, non-allergenic products on the vulva. So these can span anywhere from Vaseline to Aquaphor ointment like Mm -hmm. you would use on a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they make some fancier products that are great for this area. Mm -hmm. But I do think, um, especially for my patients with vulvar pain conditions and skin conditions, I put all of them on a regimen to take Mm -hmm. care of their vulva. But I think anybody can benefit from this, especially when we get into perimenopause, menopause, and my younger patients who are on birth control pills or anti-testosterone medications for acne. So there's many reasons why you may need to be on something to help with your skin. We love Sweet Spot Labs and actually do love all their different products that they develop for the vulva. And they're doing also such a great job in educating people about their vulvas. In fact, they introduced me to you. So we are very grateful to them. Okay. So you would put in a vulva moisturizer. What else would you put in? Oh my. Or is that it? Is that all we need? So there's not, there's not much that we need for the vulva. A lot of people do too much for the vulva and vagina. So I have a quick question for you. And it really is about just, you know, I I talk about this a lot and so many women are very self-conscious of how our vulvas smell, how our vaginas smell, and they want to be clean, right? And I know I've spoken to so many gynos that all you need is water. Like, don't put soap down there. Don't douche. You know, we know that. However, Every now and again, especially if you're about to have sex, we want to have a quick wipe down there. And we just don't think that water is enough. Like if we were to do it, what wipe and what ingredients should we look out for and not put down there? So wipes are one of the biggest culprits I see for people that have irritant and allergen allergen contact dermatitis. So this is skin reactions on the vulva due to a product or a, um, an exposure of some sort. And the problem with that is that that irritation can lead to an itch scratch itch cycle that can turn into something more long-term and harder to treat. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I really tell people to avoid a lot of the wipes because they contain alcohol in them. And so they can be very drying to that sensitive skin. And if there's any tears or any areas of concern, they can actually burn quite a bit. And so that's something definitely to avoid. But any wipes that don't contain alcohol, such as water wipes, could be completely fine. You just have to look at the ingredients. You really want to Mm -hmm. avoid fragrances because manufacturers will just write fragrance and they do not have to tell you exactly what the chemicals are that you're exposing to your body. And so you really want to look at your product list and make sure that it's nothing you're irritated or sensitive to. I have patients that have chronic vulvar conditions and I actually have them get patch testing done with an allergist. And we find out that they're sensitive to things like propylene glycol. And then we start looking up what contains propylene glycol. And it's like a ton of products that they're using. Um, I Mm. have patients that are sensitive um, to shampoos and conditioners that run down over the vulvar area. So there's a lot of potential culprits that you may not immediately think of. But as far as staying Mm -hmm. fresh and clean in that area, I completely understand that. Um, I think that using a body cleanser instead of a soap 
is important. A cleanser, just like you would use for your face, we usually mm -hmm. don't use a soap on our face because it's drying and irritating. Same for mm -hmm. that area. We, we would prefer to use a gentle cleanser, something that's meant for that area or something that's dermatologist mm -hmm. approved yeah. for sensitive yeah. skin. And so yeah. that's the best thing to use. So I absolutely love all of this advice. And it's also important when we are wiping to wipe from the front down, right? Because especially, you know, getting from the, if you wipe from the back, you can bring bacteria into the wrong place and that causes an infection. So I wanted to also bring that up as important. Absolutely. And the reality is a lot of us are not taught these things when exactly. we're children. Um, and a lot of us are not taught the proper anatomy terms as children either. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so yeah. it's so important to know what things are called, not to use pet names for our parts and to really, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter and we talk about vagina and vulva just like we talk about her elbow right? It's really funny. She was on video one time and she said, the vagina is on the inside and the vulva is on the outside. <laughs> so I she, love that. The fact that a three-year-old knows that and the rest of the world doesn't is marvelous and worrying all at the same time. I mean, I've had patients in their 50s and 60s who come to me and they can't even say the word. They just say, I have an issue down there. And I don't yeah. blame them, you know, but it, it really gives me an idea as to where we're starting from, right? Yeah. yeah because if yeah. we can't even say the words, then that's the starting point that we need to go from. Yeah. Um, whereas, and I do see a generational difference. And then I have my, you know, I have young patients, my 20 year olds, they come marching and they're like, something's wrong. <laughs> I have pain. Yeah. You need to fix yeah. it. So I do see a generational yeah. difference and things are getting better. And what would you say is your biggest treatment that you are performing, the biggest service that you are performing? Yes. So my patients that have pain with intercourse, the biggest diagnosis that I see is tight pelvic floor muscles. So that overactive mm -hmm. pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. And for them, I have them start pelvic floor physical therapy, which is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And I've also been doing a lot of intramuscular Botox injections into the levator yeah. ani muscles. Yeah. So that yeah. so Botox, as we know, is um, basically works on muscles to release those muscles. And mm. Botox stays where you inject it. So if you inject it into the muscles surrounding the vaginal opening, it can release those muscles. And in conjunction with pelvic floor physical therapy, it works really, really, really well. And so that mm. is one um, treatment that I've been doing a lot of, and I've had phenomenal results with it. I would mm -hmm. say muscles and hormones are the biggest things that I see. Um, and hormones, wow. mm -hmm. hormones are relatively easy to correct as well, because yeah. really um, when we're talking about hormones and the vagina and vulva, we're really talking about local treatment options. So we're talking about low dose local estrogen, sometimes talking about some androgen or testosterone mixed in there. But these are very safe. There's low absorption into the bloodstream. It's very different than the dosage of the products that we give either by patch or pill form for menopause symptoms like hot flashes mm. and night sweats. Mm -hmm. So it's a mm -hmm. shame that we kind of lump all of these treatments together because they're actually very different 
And we can use a lot of the vaginal estrogen products in conditions that we cannot use the patches and the pills for menopause symptoms mm. for. Mm. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, sadly, we are running out of time, but I do want to end this podcast on a clitoris note. In your experience, Jill, what's our clitoris awareness? And does everyone know that they have one? Oh, my. So... Our clitoris awareness is dismal. It's really, really bad. And that's not just patients. Actually, when it comes to OBGYNs examining the clitoris and evaluating the clitoris, that actually has a lot to be desired as well. Um, There was a study that one of my colleagues did where she basically looked for scar tissue around the clitoris that prevented you from pulling the clitoral hood, which I noticed your puppet has, off of the clitoris. And this can be a source of pain and it can also be a source of decreased orgasm. And so when she looked at a full patient population, she found that upwards of 30% of people actually had this scar tissue. So if we start examining these things, things, we will find them. I see a lot of patients with skin conditions where their clitoris is actually covered. Um, And I actually had a young patient. She was 19 years old, college student, and she had had a autoimmune skin condition as a child called lichen sclerosis, which is believed to be autoimmune. It causes scarring of the vulva, and it actually had covered her clitoris as a child, and she never knew that she had a clitoris. And she came to me because she wasn't able to have an orgasm, and she wanted to find out why. And I pointed out to her that her clitoris was hidden underneath this layer of skin, and she couldn't believe She couldn't believe it. So I did a minor procedure. Um, I uncovered her, (laughs) uncovered her clitoris. And the funny part was she actually came out of anesthesia in the main hospital. And as she was waking up, she shouted, I have a clit for everybody to hear. (laughs) Well, that is amazing. And Jill, we haven't even talked about this, but we are out of time. I know you have a new book coming out, When Sex Hurts, that talks about all the solutions. We will definitely be helping to promote that once it's out. You are such a wealth of information. Thank you for all that you do. And we're really excited to explore how to work together with you more. And we're neighbors. You're just down the road from me. I can't believe it. It's meant to be. So thank you for all you do. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I'm definitely going to have you back. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.